Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Potion Podcast. I'm a little bit late today. I apologize. I'm in the process of uh, moving house with the family and um, resetting up the office. So I've just spent the last two days painting the new uh, SHC office. Um, I've got a little nice little detached cabin, which I'm building a bar and a few other things into it. So you'll get to see that sometime in the next week or two. Um, This week's episode is a uh, three-hour monster, but I've cut it up into three parts and it'll be a the next three Tuesdays. It's my episode with the Victoria Food Guides, which I had a fantastic time with Dallas. Um, it's an absolute mammoth of a uh, of a, um, episode. So I hope you enjoyed this first hour. Three parts, next three weeks. I'll chat to you guys real soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. What's going on, everybody? My name's Dallas. You're listening to Vic Food Stories. And this is the place where we talk about food in and around Victoria, BC. And in this instance, we're going to be talking cocktails, podcasts, businesses, books, all sorts of stuff. I'm very lucky to have, or I'm very lucky with the fact that Sean Sewell is sitting here with me right now for this conversation. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you very much. The end of my day, we've cracked a bottle of wine, got a bottle of Rathjen rosé sitting on the, on the table. Dude, I got to say this rosé is so smooth mm-hmm. and it's just like, I, I'm not good with wine. Like I don't know it very well. But this thing is like, you could drink that whole bottle easily, oh, I feel like. I'm going to drink that whole bottle during this interview. <laughs> Dude, it's just so light. It's just like refreshing. Yep. It's fantastic. Well, for man, Rathjen sells up in the Como Valley. I just ordered a case here for Clive's. That's going to be our house rosé for the next little bit. And away we go. That stuff's money. So what would you pair that with, ideally, do you think? Oh, like something like like a good salad with like salmon on top, some feta, feta cheese, beets. Yeah, feta cheese, beets. Nice salad, big slab of salmon on top. Be perfect. Yeah, it's crisp, crispy side down. So the ver- first time I met you was at Cafe Mexico. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do remember I that. Mike and I just walked in and we, we had, had your no- doubts. No, we had no idea who you were. <laughs> like I didn't know you were this powerhouse doing like a million things. And and we walked in because you were redoing um, redoing that place after mm-hmm. the fire. Yep. And yeah, we just walked in and we're like, who is this guy? <laughs> he's, he's, he's crazy with the stuff he's doing there. And uh, ever since then, I've been wanting to talk to you again, just because online, like your Instagram, everything you do, it just, I, we were talking before the podcast started and the amount of stuff that you do is insane. Like, I think that I sort of push it pretty hard, but I can't imagine doing what you do with the amount of videos you put up. You know, you, you mentioned you have four podcasts. Yeah. So maybe let's, let's start with, um, let's start with the podcast. What's going on with your podcast? So, uh, two years ago, January 2019, I started a, um, the Poshif podcast, which I want to do. Like, I, I can't remember what sort of, sort of drew me to doing that, um, at, at all at the time, to be honest with you. Like, everybody says now, like, oh, everybody's got a podcast. If you're, a, if you're a middle-aged white male, you've got a podcast, blah, blah, blah. Um, I can't remember what drew me to it, but it was something that, I think it was cathartic and we talked off, off camera. We, I, I started listening to Gary Vee and, and gave me myself in a different sort of headspace. Um, and I was like, you know what? I, I think that I'd like to do this. And so I kicked it off, uh, started with the first episode. My second episode, I think was with Solomon at Pagliacci's and he's my best friend in the world. And we just, you were just you just finished there, right? Uh, we just finished the the renovations there, which was huge, brand new bar and everything. And so, really, I sort of geared it towards like taking over a family brand that's forty years old. Yeah. Um, One question about that: It's pronounced Pagliacci's, right? Pagliacci's. Yeah. It's not Pagliacci's. Not Pagliacci's. But but Pegs is correct. Pegs is it, correct. That's correct. <laughs> yes. But it's Pagliacci's. Pagliacci's, but Pegs is correct. Okay. Um. So I sort of kicked it off and then it started rolling. I, I think I went to San Antonio just after that for the San Antonio cocktail conference. Um, but yeah, it was, it was something that sort of grew organically for me, but it was something that I wanted to do for the industry. Not so much thinking that there was a, a gap in the market for or anything. So post shift started as a, every, every uh, a podcast on Tuesday and Friday on Tuesdays, my little like weekly rant about work-life balance or, stuff like trying to demystify what a lot of kids think about the industry and about pillars in the industry like myself um, and how they sort of perceive brand ambassadors and how they perceive like this cool, like, like what you said, like you see on social media, like I do a ton of stuff, like 
that's also very stressful and can be depressing at times and being an entrepreneur is not the easiest thing in the world. So I try and demystify those sort of things and bring a little bit of realism to it all. And then Friday, I do an interview with um, an industry stalwart. So whether it be Zoom calls now or in, in-person interviews. Um, and then fast forward to January this year, um, I started doing the BC Spirits podcast which is my sort of passion project about BC craft distilleries and spirits. And so I do a tasting podcast on Wednesday and then I do an interview with a distiller or a producer on, on, on a Thursday. And is it the producer that made the thing that you tasted? Uh, no, because usually I do – it's BC Spirits. I do a, a spirit a day every day of the week. Okay. And then I've got a group of like six uh, really talented – at-home mixologists or at-home bartenders who create cocktails on a daily basis as well. So I I tag them and repost a lot of their cocktails on the on the thing because they do great cocktails with local spirits. So I'm like, I I don't need to develop any of these. I've got great people who are doing it for us and it plugs them and so on and so forth. Um, and then on Wednesdays, I usually do a big tasting grouped up. So I've done like elderflowers. Uh, like last week was the elderflower liqueur off because we had like four elderflower liqueurs that I tasted side by side. I've done whiskey offs. I've done all the cassises in Kia Royale. So I did an episode with my wife, which she only makes a very um, light appearance every now and then in my podcast. But on the back deck, we set up the bar and I pulled out all the cassises I have in my collection, which was like seven cassises. Mm. And I got a couple of bottles of bubbles and I made her Kia Royales. And then she picked her favorite Kia Royale out of all of those. And so um, then Thursdays, just it's getting that connection. You, you're, you're the same. You're like, you want to get that connection about, this industry is very passion driven. And so you want to figure out why that person does what they do. Cause when people look from outside, look in, it looks at super eccentric and weird and doesn't make any sense to the general consumer. So you want to make that connection. Like, why are you doing this? Like, why are you, did you set up a distillery in Duncan and decide to make vermouth with Rathjan Sellers with like, I had Jessica from Ampersand last week. Um, and of course there's a whole story behind why that was done. Exactly. And like where they came from. And uh, I did, jo- I think the, the biggest surprise for me was uh, Josh in um, from Monashay Spirits up in Revelstoke. He was a deep under- underwater welder for like the military and the oil industry. And he did his back in. And so then he was like, well, I can't dive anymore. So retired, like semi-retired to Revelstoke and decided to open up a distillery and welded everything himself. So all his stills are all welded just by him. That's sick. So, yeah, so it, it is a ton of work producing four individual episodes every single week. And again, do all four of those have video or just some of them? Most of them have video. Yeah, that, that the video is really the part for me that adds the time. Yeah. The audio, if I, could, if I was just doing audio, it's fine. Like I can do that and it's great. Once you throw the video in, and especially when you have multicam like this, mm-hmm. where you have to start toggling back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, that adds so a bit you of time. Go, you're even more advanced than me. Like I keep it super simple, like one shot straight you're doing to the money. A favor. <laughs> yeah. One shot straight to the money. I keep it nice and simple. Um, but I also see when it comes to the podcast, it's about how do people um, digest your message? Like some people like to listen. Some people like to read. Some people like to watch videos. So I try and take away as many barriers and hurdles as I can. Um, I'm trying to get to the stage where I'm actually transcribing every single episode of my podcast into uh, written as well. Would that be a human doing that or is there services that would do that? There's a couple of services, but to really get it right, you've sort of got to download it and then put it through like a like Fiverr or something like that. Um, I use Fiverr a a ton for that sort of services where you get like copywriting and stuff like that. but yeah, like it, it all depends on how people digest you. To to think that someone's only going to digest your your information on YouTube or on your podcast, it seems very narrow minded when you just put it out everywhere. One thing I've I've noticed actually is people originally said they would only listen to podcasts, and since they found out that I have a video version, people have been transitioning over to the video version exactly because they want to see the people. Mm-hmm. But it's like they didn't realize that they actually like to consume it that way. Yep. So just go take away the hurdles. You do. And and I think that, um, I mean, these conversations are happening. It's just a matter of, do you want to spend the extra time to deal with having that extra bit of mm-hmm. uh, content as far as like adding a video? 
Yeah. And that, I, I think that, any piece of content is like a, I was just saying to my friend, like a shotgun blast against a barn side. Some things get through for certain people. Some things don't get through for certain people. Some people don't have 10 minutes to sit and watch a video. Other people do. So it, it just all depends on how you want to absorb it. Or two it. hours. Or two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and some people have said to me that I should make these shorter, but I kind of feel like if there's content and it's, it's flowing, just let mm-hmm. it go. And if somebody, I kind of like think you can pause it and come back later and there'll be more there for you. But if you don't want to hear it all, that's okay. See, I think you need an assistant so you can just chop it up. That'd be sick. I would love yeah. to have an assistant. <laughs> but I mean, I've, there's no money transpiring with this ever. So I can't afford to pay anybody. But it, it, it's it's pretty amazing. Like for me, you know, starting on Instagram, taking mm-hmm. photos, it now has transcended that. And now it's, for me, it's about connecting with people. Like I do want to tell the stories because it, it like showing the food that's being made is amazing. Because that that can tells that tells stories in itself, but when you talk to the actual people, like that's for me now where the real magic is, and and it's just the, the transfer of energy when we're getting together and chatting, and I just I find a lot of value in that for like me as a human being. Well, I think COVID, uh, if anything, has peeled away a lot of the the glamour glamorousness of the industry in a way that, like, as a restaurant operator or a, a a head chef or something like you could have a horrible day and then service starts and it's and you're smiling and you're touching tables kissing babies and stuff and i think having humanizing how much work it takes to be a restaurateur or to make it a certain dish or to to work as hard as you do to sort of aspire to a certain level um having someone like yourself to sort of peel those layers away and sort of show like the not detriment, but like the the amount of work it takes and the sacrifice it takes to oh, get have to, to be, a certain t- stage. You almost have to be crazy to want to do it. Oh, hundred percent. We're everybody in this industry is mental. If you're in a restaurant, you're you're clinically insane. I'm really, really good friends with Rap and Roll. I'm basically part of their mm-hmm. family now, like literally. And like, I'll be there three or four hours after they close. They're still working. Yep. Then the next morning, they're going to be there two hours before they open, and they they're just always there. Mm-hmm. They don't get time off. Um, especially when they did the Beirut fundraiser a yeah, couple weeks ago. That, yeah. Yeah. So that mean what that meant was they're now committed to now two weeks without a day off. And even on the day off, they come in. Yeah. So I can totally appreciate after getting to, to know a lot of people, just the, how serious it is. Yeah. And it is that fine balance between necessity and happiness. And it, and I think with hospitality, people is always toggling bit by bit. Like some days you're just like, oh, this has got to end. Like I, I need a day off. But then the next day something happens. You're like, I'm so happy to be in this industry. I love this industry. I had a great shift. Uh, great customers in tonight. Everybody had a great time. We're in like in our deep down DNA where people pleases. And that's that's what it is. That's why like we can all laugh at Yelp reviews and, and TripAdvisor and stuff like that. But like when we really – if you're an operator, an owner, like you really get one of those, it guts you like a fish. You're just like, oh, you left my place not happy. And that like we want you to feel happy and warm when you walk into our place and when you walk out of our place. Happier and warmer when you walk out of our place. So I think ingrained where these ingrained DNA people pleases. And so it's always this toggle between happiness and just necessity. And, and it is always one of those, you have a good week, you have a bad week, you have a good shift, you have a bad shift. And it's just like almost like a drug where you're just like, oh, that- You're that, chasing the- Yeah, always chasing that next high. Because I've seen so many times, or not not so many times, but quite a number of times where I've been talking to someone that I know and they did get like a one out of five review. Uh-huh. And it totally, it doesn't matter if they normally get five out of five, that one out of five totally crushes them. For days. Yes. For days. And it drives me nuts that people, if there is an issue, like go and speak with them in person. Mm-hmm. If they don't handle it properly, then do what you need to do. But like give them a chance because quite often places I think do want to make, have you be happy when you leave. Mm-hmm. And they're going to do they're going to do right by the person. My wife is the most understanding woman in the world when it comes to that because like I can be on a massive high for weeks and weeks and weeks and then something happens and I'm... In on the floor, like instantly, instantly, yeah. And you're just like, oh, just took the wind out of your sails. You're literally like a massive ship, and then all of a sudden something happens, and you're this little dinghy in in the rough waters, <laughs> and you're just like, but why is this happening to me? Yeah. What do you think when someone comes into an establishment? What's like the number one most important thing for creating the type of experience you would want someone to have? 
See, this one's a hard one because I've always contemplated this one. I think it's a symbiotic relationship and I I, I feel to a degree the symbiotic relationship between restaurant and 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 customer has sort of devolved a little bit in the in the last 10 years because of online and social media and so on and so forth. It, it should be a symbiotic relationship where you, the person's coming in to experience what you have and you're there to give you give people that experience. And I think it's devolved a little bit, whether it be culture or franchises or anything like that or being something for everybody. I think at the end of the day, it's it's this very tenuous balance of keeping your ma- mission statement and your mantra of like what you want to be and also keeping everybody happy at the same time with also the realization that you're not be- going to be able to keep everybody happy all the, t- all the time. Like, Of course. There's always going to be some random person that you just will never make happy. Exactly. But I think there's that symbiotic relationship of give and take of I'm here to take whatever you're willing to give and you're here to give me what you are offering within your little constraints or boxes of what you do. You know, you don't go to a Michelin star restaurant and ask for a hamburger, you know, same reason you wouldn't go to a pub and ask for caviar. You know, I had that back in the day here at Clive's um, way more aggressively back in the day when we didn't have really have cocktail culture in Victoria, we wouldn't do cosmopolitans and people were like, you don't have Jaeger. Like what sort of bar doesn't have Jaeger? I'm like, well, go across the street and ask if they have China. I've got China on the well. I'll pour you some China. No problems in the world. But so it's this sort of interesting meth, like where you wouldn't walk into a, a high-end cocktail bar and order a Jaeger bomb, but you wouldn't go to a dive bar and order a perfect Manhattan. You know, it seems to be demonized when you walk in and ask for a Jaeger bomb in a fancy restaurant or a fancy cocktail bar, but doesn't get demon. You'd never, never, no, a customer would never ask for a perfect Manhattan at a dive bar. Do you think it's important then to sort of create what the expectation the customer should have when they first walk in then? Like the, the, to manage the expectations? I, th- I think so. I think there's a lot of things that people, I, I call it subco- subconscious chaos. Um, I feel that the world outside of any restaurant or bar is chaotic, whether it be getting to work through traffic or your shitty boss at work. Can I swear on the podcast? Go, go for it, dude. <laughs> dude, you can say whatever you want. You're good. Um, your shitty boss at work or the crappy lunch you had or you got sh- you got pooped on by a seagull on the way to the restaurant. Which, by the way, I got shit on twice in the same day <laughs> in two different locations by birds like two or three weeks ago. Down on Government Street and Wolf Street is pretty aggressive. It, one was right by the Inner Harbor. Yeah. I was having Hanks, like eating my burger. As you do. It hit, my, it hit me in the head. And then I went to Mai Tai for, for uh, dinner. And then standing outside there, I got crapped on again. And it hasn't happened any other day in the past like 20, 30 years. But it happened so, twice on that it's day. It's a lucky day. I know. I wanted to buy a lottery ticket. You should have. And I didn't get I didn't get to one. So I think with the experience, like I see it as when people are out there in their in their ecosystem, it's chaotic and noisy and loud and disorganized. But when you step through over that threshold, it should be paced and comfortable and neat and organized and almost regimented to a degree. I, I look at it as like a duck on water. You know, like a duck on water looks peaceful and calm, just gleaning across the top of the water. But underneath that water, those legs are just like churning hard so they don't sink. And so that's what I see as a restaurant. So when when I was growing up, when I first started in the restaurant industry, I worked in a fine dining, like super fine dining, silver service style place. And everything was like thumbnails and angles and all that sort of stuff. And I've kept that sort of mentality that the maitre d' sort of fell to me because when you sit at a table, regardless of how chaotic your brain is, when you sit at that table and you see that organization and the straight lines and the edges and everything, it just should subconsciously calm you Mm. and you should feel comfortable in a space straight away. It doesn't matter if you're a fine dining restaurant where you're wearing a suit and a tie. It's that, it's that nature of, systems and places and everything that sort of ties in whether it be the music the uniforms i've been really big on uniforms in the last couple of years when it comes to like what does the uniform say about the venue how the music sounds what's the lighting like um what's everybody else drinking what are the glassware like those little things in people's heads they will never register them but subconsciously it sets a tone and bit by bit you want to take them down from that chaos to this sort of like, like a, almost like a tuning fork, bing, and you just want to bring them down 
to this place where they're just comfortable and calm when they sit down at a table and they're like, oh, my water's here. My plate, well, it's a little bit difficult with COVID right now. We've got our little, our drop zone here on the table, but like my cup's here. My, my cutlery is here. My glass gets put down on this side. I get picked up on the left side. So it's these little things that I try and take out this sort of chaotic noise that happens in people's lives out there. And one thing you said there was about uniforms. Mm-hmm. And I've never really, I, I guess I have sort of paid attention to people in like uniforms in restaurants, but I haven't really paid attention, I don't think. So I was just thinking about that here with you mentioning that. And so what do you think with a uniform, what should that really say? I think it should set a tone. Um, we're slowly but surely progressing that probably in October, going back to the chef coats, very similar to what we had at FTW back in the day. Where everybody, like all the bar staff, will be in chef coats, like nice short sleeve. They're comfortable. You wear a t shirt on it. You can go commando on it if you really want to. It's just the most airy, breezy wonderfulness that it is. Um, West, one of my one of my crew, one of my kids at FTW, he's over at Olo now. Said it perfectly when someone asked him about the chef coats. He's like, when I'm getting ready for work, I don't have to worry about the way I look. I don't have to worry about my tie, my vest being dry cleaned, anything like that. I show up in a t-shirt. I throw on my vest. It's got my name on it. It's got the emblem on it. And all my team looks the same. And our goal is the same. Our duties are the same. Our goal is to keep make you as happy as possible. And it has nothing to do with whether or not I'm wearing the, the swankiest bow tie or my tie pins right or my vest is pressed. It's about coming in and just serving the customer. And I guess that that's, re- that's removing... Uh, friction for your employees because mm-hmm. now you're making it easier for them. Yep. They don't have to worry about any of that. You just show up and just do your best. Yep. And we and we all have a common goal. Like it, it, I'm I'm from a military family, so my dad was ex-military, and so I'm the eldest six as well. So we're all 18 months apart. So like growing up as elders of family yep. in a military ex-military family, um, having this sort of rhythm and regimentation and it does sort of go against the the easy breezy flow of the west coast a little bit to a degree but when everybody has that same goal in mind when everybody has that same thought process that same movement everything your personality really comes out because all the other stuff you usually think about whether like a uniform or the way that you pour or something like that all that gets taken away and your your true personality just comes out to the customer because everybody can do the exact same movement and the exact same cocktail, the exact same way, the exact same time and speed. And it's just about the customer service. And you mentioned FTW. Yes. And unfortunately, I never got in there when it was open. Yeah. And I was I was so devastated when I saw that it it, it closed down. Yes. Yeah. So was I. <laughs> yeah. Uh how would you have descri- how would you describe FTW, what that was when it was open for anyone that didn't go? FDW was a, an interesting little thing because the, the space called for like this 1950s LA vibe. And for people like, that don't know, it's in it's across the hall from Bartholomew's. Mm-hmm. And, and Bartholomew's that, is gone now too. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Bart's are shut down too. So, oh, no. Yeah. So it was this little 38-seat sp- space that had been around for about 20, 30 years. No, nothing had really gone in there that had been successful. And we turned into this 1950s LA. What it reminded me is when you go to the LA strip down from the, the movie lots and stuff, like you drive down these strips and you see these bars behind big leather doors and you'd open them up and it'd be this great space. And you can imagine Sinatra sitting in a booth, having like three martinis and lunch during in between like breaks in the movie, the movie set or the, the recording studio. And that's kind of what we were trying to re- redo. But the cool thing we did is that we, we definitely kept our cocktail ideas in the in that 50s sort of range, but then put a real big molecular spin on it. So our, our last menu before we shut had like a um, sideshow, like a circus sideshow section where we had cocktails inspired by the circus sideshow, which included like a popcorn washed rum, old fashioned style cocktail, mm. one that had a, a like bobbing bobbing for apples. Yeah, and so we put that in a skull head, did a foam on top, and then sweet pickled crab apples, and put crab apples in like full size crab That's apples wild. in the in the drink. Um, that actually won. That one had a the, the foam was a hay infused foam, so I got hay and gave it a really good clean, and then soaked it in sugar syrup. Okay. And then turned that into a foam. So it smelt like hay on the nose, but it was bobbing for apples. That's crazy. And so we did this sort of like super modern molecular gastronomic 
molecular mixology style um, drinks menu, but geared it back towards the 50s. So we still had like a classic highball, which was uh, Suntory Toki and soda. And the cool thing with that is that in the well, in the 50s, 60s, Sammy Davis Jr. was a spokesman for Suntory. If you go to YouTube, type in Sammy Davis Jr. scatting Suntory, there's a whole ad for Suntory of Sammy Davis like scatting. He never says anything except for Suntory at the very end for like two and a half minutes with a Suntory bottle. And he plays it like a cello. He's like, and then he pulls, he pulls it over the cracked ice and he's like, Suntory puts it down. He's smoking cigarettes. He's drinking. It's just, and I was like, okay, so we're going to do a, a classic highball. And my crew's like, oh, well, that's pretty easy. I'm like, well, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring in seven different styles of sparkling water. And we're going to taste Suntory Toki with all these sparkling waters to see which one goes best. And then you start really geeking out about sparkling water with whiskey. And so we taste all these sparkling waters and we're like, okay, this one. And it's just random French sparkling water, really small bubbles from Bossa Imports that we had to pick up from Market on Yates every couple of days. And that's all it was, a double shot of Suntory Toki with this very specific sparkling water. It just tasted money, sold tons of them, but it's just a classic whiskey highball. So It's we- amazing that though with water. How water can change everything. Because we, we went to a sake uh, brewery in Japan when I was there with oh, wow. Anton. We went, to, we went to one of them right by Mount Fuji. Uh-huh. So they had in the, in the, the main um, uh, place where you could buy everything and in the main area there, they had this little well kind of with, with water from Mount Fuji coming out. Seriously? And you could just take a glass and put it under and drink it. And it was like, it was like buttery. I've never had water like that in my life. It's crazy, isn't it? It was the most insane thing. And then like when we, we, we got private tours at um, Yamazaki and Hakushu. Of course you did. <laughs> which, which were sick. Um, but going to those tours, like we learned that they put those breweries mm-hmm. in those locations because of the water. the water. That's why. It's mental, isn't it? It's, it's crazy. Like, and people think like, oh, the water doesn't really matter. I'm like, yeah, but if your alcohol content's 40, then that means 60% of that bottle is water. Like it, 40% alcohol, the rest is water. Like it means something. We did the same thing with F, going back to FDL, but we did the um, Frank Sinatra and it was just a triple pour of Jack Daniels single barrel because that was Frank's, he, he was a Jack Daniels drinker. So we did a triple and we, we poured like seven still waters to put on the side, hand, cru- hand, hand carved ice triple pour of the Jack Daniel single barrel with a side of water. And we went through all these waters and I picked up Evian and I thought, ah, it's going to, it's just going to be the baseline. It's going to be like, if that's, if we're going to do all these waters, that's going to be the one that's just like, eh, it's good, but it's the baseline. And we all agreed that the Evian was the best. And then West was doing a little bit more research once we started opening. And we found this old Sinatra rider for one of, his, one of his performances. And it lists like his vodka and he has to have these sort of M&Ms and sardines and so on and so forth. But the, the key was was these bottles of Jack Daniels and then bottles of room temperature Evian water. Hmm. And I'm like, well, obviously, like Frank drank his Jack Daniels with a splash of Evian. And I was like, okay, obviously that means something. It's serendipitous. So that's on the menu now. That's sick. <laughs> Do you think you'll ever open another bar in town? I got asked that question today, actually. I'm not sure. Okay. I, I will never say never. Well, I mean, like, again, you, you do so much stuff. Like, where would you have the time to do that? But I'm taking back over this place. I know. <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to get into that. I wanted to ask you, though, too, about uh, Suo Hospitality Concepts. Okay. And just to sort of explain to everyone what that was. I think that's that's probably the main reason why I probably wouldn't open something else. Like, I love opening bars. Like, I love opening bars and restaurants. I love that that grind, that that work that it takes to build a team and build a menu and stuff like that. Um, I just – I don't think it's the best use of my skills and my time in this, day, in, in this time. I think that's more it is that it becomes – it takes everything that I'm sort of doing right now and just puts it into one channel mm-hmm. very quickly. It's like you're doing this and this and this. But then when you open a place, it's like, okay, you do everything for that one place. And I think... So do you feel like you're going to be able to reach a lot more people or have a bigger impact? I think that's what it is. I yeah. think opening a venue is great. But for from a like 
a pure legacy point of view. And I think over the last couple of years, like when I opened up Little Jumbo in 2013 um, and I left here and then I, I did FTW in 2017, I think legacy has changed definitions for me. And legacy used to be like a venue specific legacy. Whereas now uh, SHC and all the things I'm doing, it's my legacy is tweaked. Like my legacy is not so much having one team of three or four people that I train and take to a certain level. It's industry wide. And it's not about just making one venue really, really good. It's about making as many venues as I can good. Um, whether it be interior design and construction or online marketing or social media and all that sort of stuff. So, so you'll basically advise like a business or a restaurant on everything they need to do. I can take now with everything that I'm doing, I can take from a napkin concept yeah. to post operations all within my companies. Wow. From I've got a branding and design guy who does menus and logos and everything so he's done all my branding he actually did little jumbo branding back in the day so funnily enough with the tattoo he sent me this through and because i was just so busy when with the opening of little jumbo um i forgot to message him back and say yeah it's really good and then i went and got the tattoo and so he saw my facebook post with the tattoo and he's like he texts me he's like so you're happy with the branding i'm like yep (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're committed for life yeah so i got the tattoo literally the day we signed the lease for for jumbo but i think legacy wise i think that's what's sort of as you get older i think like before it's it's not ego driven but it's very you want to sort of accomplish something by a certain age in the industry like opening your own venue or so on and so forth and i think it's changed now where like like mike norberry you interviewed him and anton Fernine, like he was one of my kids and you know so i've got like this whole sort of brood of bartenders that I, I sort of train and mentor and talk to and stuff like that. So I think I see that as my legacy more so than a singular, almost inward feeling of like opening your own venue. Well, I would say this, this is amazing because it sounds like you have really good self-awareness. Yeah. I, it's taken me a long time. Like, of I course, you, well, I, you, it takes time to get more data, <laughs> yeah. right? It's taken me long, like opening three venues last year in like five months in Singapore was a, a huge experience. Um, yeah. So how did that happen? So that was through a few things, but one of my good friends who used to be here in Victoria moved to Singapore about six years ago and he opened a place there and then they want to expand. And I think he reached out to me may 1st or just before may 1st last year i was like oh we're talking about doing this concept and here's the the concept sheets and design work and stuff i'm like okay cool and i think i was on vacation with the family at that time i came home for a week and i went to portugal to speak at the lisbon bar show and um i had a a a zoom meeting or a phone meeting with them a video call conference when i was there and i wrote the contract up while i was lisbon I came back from Lisbon for one week and then I flew to Singapore for two and a half months. So I. <laughs> and you opened five or three restaurants in. Three restaurants in five months. That's crazy. Yeah. So a lot of the, a lot of the design and um, uh, the design and sort of layout work had been done, but none of the menus, none of the hiring and that sort of thing. And I think I posted a video on May 1st when I first landed. Oh, sorry, not May 1st, May 27th when I first landed in in Singapore. And it's just like dirt floors, a little bit of framing, and that's it. And then we opened that on June 3rd. So literally a month between landing and thing, I had to do a full menu, full wine list, full food, food dev. Um, and then we opened up a little cocktail bar. So the, the first restaurant was like 70 seats in the front called um, Misfit, Misfits. Um, very Spanish style, Mediterranean, Greek island sort of feel to it. And then in the back, they want to do like a 15 speak- seat speakeasy called Roxy. Mm. And that was going to be Latin America. So new, like old world, like new world, old world, sort of oh, new world, old world. Um, and so we did all Latin America. So lots of rum, tequila, mezcal, soto, that sort of thing. Um, and then my second visit back in, I think, October, August, was to do the third venue, which was called Bayside over right on Fulton Place. So, you know, Singapore is the big three tower, 
yacht on the top sort of deal, literally straight across from that. Hmm. And the the group that owned that area had basically leveled a garden bed to put this bar in. And it was horribly designed. Um, and sort of like we tried to get our finger in the pie earlier on design. And so we had to really rip everything out and start again. And so that that opened along with Roxy, my second visit. And so, yeah, three venues in, in five months. And how many restaurants would you say you've worked in or had a hand in over since, the years? Since Little Jumbo in 2013, I worked at 13 venues. Wow. In one way, shape, or form between from consulting on designing, opening, owning. Yeah. So like 13 venues in seven years. And how, with the consulting and that, how did that come to be that you sort of got into that role? Like, was it just a natural thing that just over time you just realized that this is something I'm good at and I have vision or how did that work? Um, that was a hard, that was a hard slog to be honest with you, because it's something that's never really existed in Victoria anyway. And so when I did Cafe Mexico, like we talked about Cafe Mexico, that was a cold call. I literally reached out on Facebook. I was like, saw the article, you're reopening. Would love to help out. Um, and they're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, let's let's sit down, and chat, and and see how much. Like, I, so I gave him a quote. Because something you were I, something that stands out for me at, at Mexico was um, you were doing something where one of the one of the um, barrels, like you wouldn't fully empty it, mm-hmm. and you would sort of mix different, like so they were aged. Yeah, and that was a really cool thing where you're getting Which different have- different ages of the the alcohol. Yeah, so together. that 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 those sort of things. The good thing is that Brad and Hilda are amazing operators. Brad's been doing it for 30-something years. Like, Cafe Mexico was 30 years old. Before that, he had two or three restaurants. So, he used to own the the restaurant that was in the Bent Mast, before the Bent Mast. Um, absolutely amazing operator. And so, pairing up with them, it was a lot of work because the scope of the work, once we really started digging in, like, the floors had to get replaced because they were fire damaged. All the walls had to get sandblasted because they were fire damaged. But we had to be careful on the, the walls because they're... 120 year old brick and so the guys who came in and sandblasted sandblasted too heavy with too heavy grit so then we had to get it more repointed um and i remember just before i flew out to tales of the cocktail for a, a seminar i literally climbed up a ladder and a ruler and chalk and designed that back bar like with like <laughs> a ladder and chalk so i left with this big this big slabbed wall of plywood with boxes drawn in chalk. I was like, this is the boxes that you need to put in. And then they just built boxes and screwed them in on that side. So that was like everything from the basic booths across in the bar and everything I designed from like by hand draw drafted out. And so I think when it came to consulting here in Victoria, I had to make the decision if I was going to do it, that I had to attack it. It couldn't be a, like wait for it to happen. It had to be like if some place burned down or a place needed work, like I'd, I'd hit up places that I'd go and have cocktails. I'm like, your cocktails are rubbish. Like don't mean to be rude, but like you've, you're a Caribbean bar that doesn't serve good mojitos. Um, let me help you out. And so there was a little bit of, well, it's a little bit of humility because you're sort of asking for work, mm-hmm. but also there's a little bit of, arrogance and the fact that you think you can do better than they're doing so this is sort of balancing act so i helped out guild for a long time while before they got taken over helped out with their the training and uh beer program and so on and so forth inventory and the financial back-end stuff i'm helping sizzling tandoor with their expansion right now i helped them with the first time round on johnson street um japanese villages little lounge i did nothing with the cocktail program at all because they didn't want anything with the cocktail program, but I came in, I redesigned the bar, ripped out the sushi bar, my my contractor ripped out the sushi bar, my interior designer paired everything up because we couldn't really upgrade the space because Japanese village is Japanese village. So we had to sort of like try and pair everything up with 30-year-old decor that Japanese village is still going to be Japanese village and it's always awesome, but we had to pair it up, um, which was really difficult. We had to pull a guy out of retirement to pour the... The, the bar top because he did the original bar top in 1978 or something. So, he pulled him out of retirement to lay down the new bar top. Is that purely because of the fact he was 
in it before? It, did he do it, something unique? He did something super unique. It was a very specific resin, a very specific resin mix um, with flake that got dropped into a mold, and we couldn't find anyone in town to do it. So they pulled this guy out of retirement and pulled like this bar top to match everything. That's crazy. So, but it was just it was just bit by bit of like this sort of a balancing out between humility and arrogance to sort of build the business up, um, which I still have to do now. I have to remind myself to keep doing the same thing all the time. Yeah. Do you ever, do you ever struggle like with ego? Is that ever a thing that you battle with? Like your ego says, Oh, you should do this, but you know, it really, you shouldn't do that. I have, I have a concept called my banner and my Hulk. Okay. So my wife sees my banner my very vulnerable, like second guessing, constantly not very confident person, which I am. I'm, I'm I've got social, hardcore social anxiety and introvertness, which people go, you know, but then my Hulk is the guy you see behind the bar. He's the guy's like, Hey, 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 Hey. And so I'm constantly struggling with Hulk and banner. How, how difficult do you find it to be able to recharge? I don't take days off. I take hours off. Okay. So, but I find the things that make me happy in the shortest period of time. So spending time with my family. Now, mainly my wife is ridiculous. Like I said, my wife is ridiculous understanding. My my daughter is too. Um, they know that if I go out for a hike or breakfast, that that's my recharge time. I can recharge pretty quickly. Um, but then I find things that are just for me as well. So, I'm really, I love my cigars. So smoking a cigar on the back deck, just chilling out. I'll, I'll be on my phone. I'll be doing social media. Or I'll be answering emails during this time. I'll have my laptop on my lap, but it, it's my time. Like it's my time to just relax with a whiskey and a, and a cigar. Um, and I'll just chill out like that. So for me, recharging is not really a necessary thing because I wake up every morning, sometimes rough, sometimes good, but it's that chase, it's that process, it's that like constant like, okay, what do I have to achieve today? Like I know what I have to do. Obviously, COVID's very hard for everybody right now because it's very repetitive because it's you can't go out, you can't go sit at the coffee shop and write, you do your edits of your book, you go sit in your office and do that. But I find that's what keeps me going. It's that all the time. So you like, just you straight up love the process like Gary Vee says. Yes. Because like, you enjoy the whole all every part of it. You're not and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not gonna rah 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 it and say like I love it all the time. There's of course. T- there's times when I wake up and just like when I do these podcasts, there's parts of this process that I hate. Yeah. When I'm actually putting it together, there's there's a, some parts that I really don't like. And you're just like, oh I just want this to be done or yeah. I just want a break or I just want something. And so I never try and rah rah I try and keep very like a couple of weeks ago um, on a Saturday, like I just did a, a massive, like 12 hour shift here. It was busy and I woke up and I'm a part of, a um, a charity organization out of Toronto called the bartenders benevolent fund. So usually on Saturday morning, we do a big meeting and go through all the grants and say, yes, you get money. No, you get money. Don't and so on and so forth. And so that's usually at 10 o'clock in the morning. And so I had to do that. And then I do some errands for this place. And I actually stopped and I tweeted out to everybody. I was like, you know what? I, can handle this most of the time. Today's hard. Hmm. Like today's a hard one. You know, I've, I've had three nitros. I'm bad. My feet are killing me. Like being back behind the bar is absolutely great. Next morning, not so much because my feet ache, my, my knees are bad. Um, and so like, I, I like to show people that there's, there's some vulnerability to it. Like I'm not a steamroller that just keeps going and going and going. Like there is times when I was like, most of the time I'm, I am like, I'm super positive want everybody to succeed. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And there's other times I'm like, oh, I just want to go back to bed. I want to spend time with my wife. I Are wanna... you naturally a positive person? Ooh. Because so- Man, the, that's a curveball. Well, no, Jeez. I, I'm just, it just popped into my head. The reason why I ask is because I'm not. And everyone that I, a lot of people that know me, they all think like I'm always super positive, but I make a conscious choice to be that way. I, I would say I'm a little bit of, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, Growing up, um, I like I said, I grew up in a big family. I went to fourteen different schools between preschool and, and grade twelve, and two of those schools I went to for three years and four years. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine, I went. I think I went to grade five, like four grade five schools. So having friends, moving, 
Um, I had a very upheaval life, like upbringing with my family. Um, we moved around a lot. My, again, my dad was ex-military. And so in the back of your head, you sort of got to shut that voice up. And I think that's a little bit goes back to that banner and Hulk of like, you've got to shut that voice up sometimes and let Hulk drive mm-hmm. um, of like, oh, shit's going good right now. Something bad's going to happen soon. Like, oh, you've made some good friends at school. You're starting to fit in. You're not the, the weird geeky kid who like, should be two should be two grades ahead and nailing through all his classes and wearing secondhand clothes and shit like the weird like secondhand clothes not the good secondhand clothes, like weird secondhand clothes um, at a new school and then you got to move again and start the process all over again. Um, so I think I think it's a little bit of calling. Like there's days when I wake up, I'm just like gun ho, like freaking loving life. The patio, to be honest, like last week the big big win for me was putting the patio out the front at, at Clive's. Like that had been a, a one month stress stress ball in my head as soon as that happened it like took a, a weight off my shoulder yeah who came up with that idea then was yeah. it you yeah <laughs> okay i think with clive's like there's always gonna be that hook you know like when you come to clive's like without barsies as well which really is a killer um you'd come to clive's back in the day and you go oh i might be able to get sit at the bar but if i sit at the floor that'll be okay but without barsies what's what's the what's the hook you know sitting on the floor you can still get a great experience from the staff a great here me and Dave get out from behind the bar and touch tables, kiss babies and stuff. But now with the patio, it's like, okay, well, let's get in the Clive's. We may get onto the patio. If we don't get on the patio, I'll be okay with inside. So that's now the hook. So mm-hmm. now like last week was like twice as busy as we've had since we reopened. I love it. Which was huge. And it's I'm it leans back into the sort of European aperitivo style that I want Clive to sort of go back into that direction. Aperol spritzes, Negronis, Americanos. Um, this week on the Happy Hour menu, I'm putting um, Averna uh, lemonade on back on the menu, which is um, Averna and lemon tonic, which is money. Mm. Um, so it's sort of gearing back to where I want Clive's to be in the next six months. And do you, those Happy Hour menus, do you change those every week? Um, happy menus stay, they're, they're evolving. Because I'm trying to wind down my beer program to be a bit smaller, wind down my wine program to be a bit smaller, um, and we're putting more spirit, like more cocktails on tap. Mm-hmm. So probably Friday this week, I think Quinn messaged me. So Quinn and Michaela have got their uh, the Squawite Wine Company, their dry vermouth and tonic. Um, they're exclusively kegging that for us, and so they're going to carbonate it, keg it, and carbonate it, pre-mix and everything on site there, and just deliver us kegs. And then we just tap it and we'll have vermouth and tonic on tap. So that's kind of cool. That's amazing. <laughs> so in the next in the next three to four weeks, we'll probably see we've already got Negronis on tap, vermouth and tonic on tap, Aperol spritzes on tap, and a Prosecco on tap. And so we'll just kind down our beer program just because we don't sell enough beer and cocktails sell. So and, and so how did this come to be with you coming back to Clive's? Oh, that's a good story. Um so Jason and Alicia have been here pretty much since I left. So Jace took over from me when I left in 2013 to open Jumbo. Um, and just during COVID, he took the chance to sort of take a, take a look inward of what I shouldn't really talk for Jace, but like take a look at what he wanted to do in the industry and working late nights. It, it's a drag. It, it does take a toll on your body. Um, so working late nights and, and working a beast that is Clive's like Clive's is a, a huge responsibility as a brand to continue constantly it's, it's a it's a little bit of a hamster in the wheel and the hamster doesn't stop um and so he took the opportunity to step away and sort of reevaluate and he, he's now a manager over vessel liquor which i think is awesome i love Vessel. i was just in there a couple of days ago yeah and my just, girlfriend found something she's like oh my god i had this in edmonton i couldn't find it anywhere <laughs> yeah. and here we go some of the weirdest stuff in there which yeah. is great um but so yeah, he's he's over there, which is he's got a work life balance, which I I actually did a podcast day about work life balance because it is very like you said self aware. Like my work life balance is not like someone else's work life balance, and I shouldn't aspire to your work life balance or so on and so forth. Um, and so I reached out to the hotel and I was like, hey, so heard you're looking for someone. Would you be up for listening? Like sitting down and having a chat. So we had a chat and. I think a few things that are happening in the city with like Veneto no longer being Veneto and, mm-hmm. and sort of losing that sort of foundation of cocktail culture, which Veneto is like literally the – it's Clive's and Veneto, then Jumbo on top and Cenote and, and Sherwood and Wind Cries Mary and Nubo now and stuff like that. So it's losing like a big 
foundational chunk out of our industry, out of our culture, I think was a big blow to me personally. Not because I had anything like invested in 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 Venator apart from the kids that worked there and, and mentoring them. But it was just like one of those things is like Did you work with all of them there? Most of them, yeah. Okay. Like Brant was that with me at Little Jumbo. Mikey was with me at FTW. Yeah. Um so most of them had been with me in one shape one way, shape or form. But it was a fact it, it sort of with with that sort of happening, it took me way back to 2009 when I first took over Clive's and we literally had Clive's and Solomon's. And then Veneto came on the scene and Solomon's left the scene. And so it took me back to like, like one of those like flashback Walt Disney style, like when what's his name? He's taste Ratatouille for the first time. And he goes back to his childhood. It was literally like a flashback back to 2009 when I was like remembering Clive's, like when I tell stories about Clive's back in the day when I first took over and Saturday nights would be me and chef. So no support, no, no floor stuff, just me on the floor chef in the back and I'd ring out $120 hmm. not in tips like $120 in sales on a Saturday night and that sort of slow progressive build and sacrifice and work and like texting all your friends to come down and have cocktails because cocktails just weren't a thing at all in 2009 and so it took me back to this t- this time where like cocktail culture was just a slow burn and that didn't. That wasn't quick. Like people think that Clive's happened really quickly. Like I took over in May two thousand nine. I would say that Clive's became Clive's in October twenty ten. So like eighteen months of this excruciating slow burn. Was it acknowledgeable for you when that happened? Like looking back, you can sort of see the shift, I guess, or the change. Yeah. But at the time, could you acknowledge that? Like, did it ever hit? Not not on a level that I was aware of. Hmm. Not on a level that I was like, I'm making a difference. Um, and then 2010 sort of happened. I got a new bartender on. 2011 and 2012, we got the back-to-back world's best bar in the like top four world's best hotel bar at Tales of the Cocktail, which still no other bar in all of Canada has even got to the top four ever. Yeah, that's insane. Um, and this is 2011 and 2012. So... The amount of work it took to that. So like when Veneto sort of disappeared and sort of dissolved, it sort of pushed me to go, okay, well, I, I made a joke to the kids. And I was like, oh, dad's going to come out of retirement and freaking like pick up the pick up the bootstraps. Yeah. But like it, it really came back. Coming back to Clive's was really a legacy thing. It goes it go, it go, it go back to legacy. is like I would really horribly regret coming in here six months if I said no to the opportunity, coming back in six months and it all going to worse like to crap and me walking in going, man, I could have saved this place. I could have not that it was in a bad spot, but like I, if I could really have made a difference here and that that's why I sort of I talk, sat down and talked to the wife really hard. Um, and I was like, Oh, I don't know. Do I have time for this? Like, you know, I can probably do 35 hours a week here. It's mainly night sides. So it's just extending out some of the work that I do. And she's like, oh, I think it'd be really good for you to go back and just have, have that sort of that place. And so I, I bit the bullet and coming back has been the hardest and the most rewarding thing I've done in a, in a well, I shouldn't say in a while, but like you know, on a different level, like on a, that, that sort of very bartending pillar sort of level, it's been one of the most rewarding things on that. And so for you coming back and sort of, having that type of feeling what's been the coolest thing you think so far since you've come back here the customers having the guests back having some people who i know supported clive's back before it was cool you know chef Corey from um whole beast yeah Corey's awesome yeah Corey's fantastic he used to come here in 2009 2010 and be one of those people on a saturday night sitting at the bar for three four hours having pisco sours and fernand and cokes he'd bring sean down and Sean and Michelle, who were starting dating when they, in 2009, when they used to come in here, are now married with a kid, you know. So I think it's that response of, while on on a physical level, it's diff- it's hard to work behind the bar again, going on 40, that response of people going, I'm so happy that you're back. Like that, that's, it goes back to that people please a thing. Like it's, it's that, like people coming back here for some, some of the people have come back for the first time in like five years, six years. They haven't, they haven't come back since I left, which is, 
it is a bit of massive ego stroke, but like it's it's also one of those things is like to have that sort of brand confidence from the consumers is a huge thing. Like having that confidence where you can where someone's willing to just like have that sort of symbiotic relationship and just go, What are you working on? Just give it to me. Um I was gonna ask, how many people just come in and, and like get you to make something on the spot? Lots. Like what percentage <laughs> do you think? Lots. Because <laughs> one thing we we uh Anton and I found when we were in Japan mm-hmm. and we went to Lampar. I don't know if you're familiar with Machido. No, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He uh I think he was named the the best bartender in the world in 2015. Mm. Or it was some it was some very prestigious uh, award. And when we went in there, it was a little speakeasy bar and they had actually two hidden bars on either side of the the, the main room. Wow. So it, like it was like a hidden door. One of them was some luggage that you would push the door back and go through into a whole bar. So a speakeasy within a speakeasy within a speakeasy. Yes. And then and then when you first walked in there was a mirror right here on the right. And that mirror would slide back and there'd be a whole another bar there. But there was no menu at that that bar. Mm-hmm. You just you went in, he would ask you what what you liked, and then he would just sort of stand there and think about it for a second. And he had his little notepad. And he again, they were they were dressed all yeah. there was a reason why they were wearing what they were wearing. Every bottle was there for a reason. And it was just a very different experience to experience something like that. But when you walked in, didn't you feel that like that center, like I, I felt like the place knew what it was, yeah, and it was just everything was exactly how it should be. There was no, yeah, there was no. Um, it was very calm. No fuss and no muss. There wasn't. Yeah. No, it was just it. It knew what it, it knew what it wanted to be. That's what it was, and everything was in the place where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. It was very very relaxing, and then just to have him come and the confidence of him, like he was very sort of more um, very quiet, mm-hmm. but you could tell like he he knows his stuff. Yeah. And then he brings it out and then he brings you a drink and explains what it is. And like one of them, I think he took um, Crown Royale and redistilled it and made his own stuff with it. And then he had like a, a bitter that he had made with some sake and mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And it was just, it was madness. It was crazy. And, and that's just the thing is like, again, it goes back to, I think we were talking about it earlier. It was like um, culture, like culture, whether it be cocktail, wine, whatever, Cocktail culture isn't built off creativity. It's built off consistency. And that consistency then breeds confidence. And then once you have that confidence in the brand, you know you can go there for absolutely anything. You know that the drinks are always consistently good. Like they're creative, but they're always consistently good. Like you can have a creative drink once and it's great. Next one's not so great. The The second visit is horrible. But it's that, that consistency of awesomeness that you've got to sort of keep because then that breeds – like I can walk up to a table now and go – usually drink xyz right and they're like yeah yeah and I'm like i got something new for you and they'll be like cool and they're like and they'll you can see them go well what is it i'm like i'm not gonna tell you and i'll go off and make it and bring it out to them put them down from like oh this is awesome like the averna and lemon tonic like Corey was in and i'm like i know you like fernand and cokes i know that you like pisco sours i know you like these drinks i'm like you're gonna love this averna and lemon tonic because it tastes like a old school sort of coca-cola sort of sarsaparillary sort of oh, thing with a lemon this. twist. That yeah. would be amazing. And it's just two ounces of Verna, top of lemon tonic. Like a bit of lemon. And it's just money. And I'm like, that's as simple as drink and people are just going to eat that up. And I guess that that is though, that's because of your expertise. You know what somebody, you know what somebody else doesn't know that they don't know. Yeah. I guess. You yeah, can make that connection maybe. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's the thing is, is like, People do want to let go. You just got to build that confidence up in people mm-hmm. so that they feel so comfortable with you that they'll say yes to anything. It's the same thing with like sushi, right? Like talking about Japan, like sushi restaurants. You'll go and you'll sit at a sushi bar and you'll talk to the sushi chef and he may give you like three very like rudimentary dishes that are very classic. But then you're sort of like, well, where, where's your weird stuff? And then all of a sudden his eyes will light up and he'll be like, ah, oh, you want weird stuff. Here's some mackerel and here's some sea urchin and here's some, like, he'll, he'll give you the, the tuna roll and the, and the, the prawns and stuff like that to start. Yeah. But then when you start like building that rapport, all of a sudden he's like sliding mackerel to you, sliding some smoked eel, some sea urchin. There you go. And all of a sudden you're sort of building this sort of symbiotic relationship and it takes a really long time. Like, and that's the thing is like goes back to that, like those years and years of Clive's of even when Clive's in 2010 became super popular and won awards and all this sort of stuff, it's still, it's still work. And I, I 
sometimes I have to remember, remind myself when I do like new places, whether it be Little Jumbo, FTW, Cafe Mexico, that I sort of have to always take it back to a zero to sort of start again. And I think, I think that's always the key is like Cafe Mexico. Great. Yes. I'm, I'm running the bar program. I was the general manager, but I've got great people running the bar program and they're making the cocktails. You've got to still build confidence in the, a whole new myriad of customers because the people who go to Clive's Little Jumbo, Veneto, weren't coming to Cafe Mexico in the beginning. The, the first couple of months were all old Cafe Mexico clientele who were used to their Tex-Mex and free, free uh, tortillas and dip and all that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, they're getting like hardcore Durango cuisine. And That place was so different after. High-end cocktails. So different. It was amazing. It's, it's literally one of the things that I regret doing when we rebranded that we didn't change the brand up from Cafe Mexico, mm. that we didn't change the brand to align more to the direction we're going, especially with uh, Chef Wazé now there. Um, he is doing some epic, like classic, like Mexican dishes. I don't think chimichangas are on the menu anymore because the menu had to get truncated for COVID. He took the opportunity to go, okay, no more chimichangas. And so he's geared it much more towards like traditional Mexican food. Like I know that he goes to Mexico well before COVID, obviously he was going to Mexico one or two times a year and eating all the Michelin star restaurants in Mexico city and stuff like that. And really experiencing Mexican cuisine on a whole different level. Um, and he is just a phenomenal chef. He is like one of the most talented Mexican chefs I've ever experienced in my whole entire life. His tacos are on point. Everything that he does is on point. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.